to the Urban Planners Podcast, hosted by Gigi the Planner. This podcast is about all things urban planning related and otherwise. In this setting, we'll discuss the ins and outs of the planning field. We'll even delve into some very controversial topics involving the role planners have to take in their everyday lives and jobs. Without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. This This is Gigi the Planner. Welcome to episode 20 of the Urban Planners Podcast. In today's episode, I'll be continuing my Black Urbanist Speak Out series, and I'll be interviewing D'Angelo Swetkinson and Antoine Bryant, and we will be talking about the urbanism divide. This is part one of two. Hope you all enjoy. Thank you, D'Angelo and Antoine, for joining the Urban Planners Podcast. I'm glad to have both of you. So let's get started. I know, Antoine, you're an architect and a planner. Can you tell us about your story? How did you get into both fields and, you know, where did you go to school and all that good stuff? Sure. Not a problem. Glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity, Gisla. And I'm glad to be here with my good, uh, my man, D'Angelos, right now. Born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I spent most of my formative time in New York City. And I grew up in what we've all come to know as the projects. And at an early age, uh, I realized I wanted to find a better way or find a way to uh, redefine my environment. And I knew there had to be something different. And uh, I was introduced to architecture, actually, as a young kid when I was about 11 years old. I met an older brother uh, named Harry Simmons, who was a black architect who did housing all over New York State. And he had basically redesigned Brownstone in Brooklyn. It had redesigned and made it its own place. And I was like, you know, this is something that I would like to do. I went to Cornell for architecture. And while I was there, Cornell is a very theoretical school, their architecture program. And I got kind of lost my way a bit. There were some things there I just didn't understand or appreciate. And that's when I got exposed to it planning and how planning, my understanding, the way I was taught, was that it was a much more comprehensive way of how cities come to be. And uh, it touches on architecture, it touches on urban design, it touches on economics, it touches on sociology. And uh, I thought this was a great opportunity to kind of look at critically how cities come to be. Uh, I got my undergrad from Cornell in planning, I switched there, but I still wanted to affect the built form directly. And that's what led to my going to University of Texas for uh, Masters of Architecture. And since then have been involved almost exclusively in community development, design, and planning for most of my career. I'm working a lot in the nonprofit sector in Houston, but now I work for Moody Nolan Architects. We're the largest Black-owned architecture firm in the country. We've got 11 offices, and I'm here in the Houston office doing product management, planning, and business development. And so it's been a fun ride, but I'm definitely still working on the development of cities all across the country. That's the short version. There you go. Cool. So thank you for clarifying for me that Moody Nolan is the largest. I thought that it was. So thank you for clarifying that. So DeAngelos, what is your planning story? How did you get into the field of planning? Actually, it started off playing SimCity as a kid. Love computers, love science. And then I was looking for a game. I started playing these kind of conquest games. And then all of a sudden came across SimCity. And I was like, I'm determining where the housing is, where the jobs are, where the industry is at, where the freeways are at. I'm balancing a budget. And then I was like, oh, this is nice. And then I was like, yo, people actually do this for a living. And I was like, oh. So at first I was like, oh, I want to be the mayor because that's what the game used. But I was like, nah, there's actually whole departments for this. And so 
it caused me to ask a lot of questions. And so out of high school and undergrad, I started in real estate because I know I wanted to be an entrepreneur and focus on creating wealth in the community for myself and family. But then I also had all these questions like, why is my neighborhood the way that it is? Why did the freeway choose to go through my neighborhood versus somewhere else's in the Rondo community? And the real estate program at St. Cloud State couldn't answer that. I mean, they were about finance, numbers, market, valuations. And so the planning program was a prerequisite to get into the full major. And that's where I started asking the questions and the teachers had some theories about why things that were the way they were. So naturally, I switched majors quickly, hopped into planning, studied housing, housing filtering, all the federal programs and policies, transit policies, economic development. So it, it really just created, it quenched the fascination I had with determining why my neighborhood, which was considered a hood, even though it's not really, why it was the way it was. And so I knew I wasn't done. I needed more tools. So I went to grad school right away at Jackson State University for my master's in planning. And that's where I really carved the niche for myself around where does planning and real estate intersect and how do you create cross-sector leadership? Because a lot of planners have ideas, but they don't know how to get them paid for. That was the theory that everyone was working with in practitioner world. And I was like, well, I'm going to change that. I'm going to know why the neighborhood is the way it is. I'm going to know how to get it funded. And I'm going to know how to make sure people can get paid by doing it. Awesome. So you went to an HBCU for your master's. How was that experience? I know a lot of us planners, Black planners specifically, aren't able to actually go to school to HBCU for their master's because not many HBCUs have degrees in planning. So how was that experience for you? So I was hyper-intentional. Like, I've been in Minnesota my whole life. So at 23, I was like, I have to get out. And to your point, there's only three programs, Morgan State, Alabama A&M, and Jackson State. And I was like, nah, Alabama ain't going to be it. So it was Baltimore or Jackson. I'm the first generation Minnesotan. My family's from the Deep South in the Delta area. And so I'm two hours away from family. I don't see that often versus going to the East Coast or Mideast. I checked out Baltimore and I was like, nah, I'm going to the South because we'll talk about Baltimore later. But it's the Deep South, man, there's a hospitality that you get. And if you don't grow up there or live there, you don't appreciate it until you go down and you're like, man, this is how I want to be treated with respect before I start the conversation. And so that's what I really, you know, gravitated towards. So the HBCU life, I went to a, a white school. Like it was 98% white with 2% of other and black people were sprinkled in that other. So it was a culture shock and it allowed us to have real conversations around people who say soft stuff and planning, but people who grew up in the neighborhood can have a real conversation like, yo, our neighborhood really wasn't that dope. It was black, but it wasn't that dope. We were missing some things and we didn't know it because we were young. So how can we balance making our neighborhoods better by maintaining cultural integrity and cultural identity? And so I think that allowed us to prepare for these moments in history where you have diverse neighborhoods and you are the professional. But if you didn't have these conversations, you may not feel as competent going in talking about, no, actually the quality of life isn't that good. Here's how we need to improve it, but maintain certain aspects that everyone really loves. And so I love it. I wish everybody could do it. I, I hope everyone gets a chance. Jackson State, the I love, make sure you do it. So 
Thanks for that. So Antoine, heading back to you. So you work at Moody Nolan, the largest black owned architecture firm. How has that experience been for you? Like in the empowering aspect, because I know not many people, so Mr. D'Angelo's have that experience to be able to work under such a power. How has that been for you? It's funny you mention that because I went to work for them almost exclusively because of who they are, right? I was working on my own for a number of years. I was working in a nonprofit for a number of years. And I went to work for Kurt and now Jonathan, his son, primarily because it was a, a Black-led firm that was looking to make an impact in the industry. And it's great. I have a lot of friends that are working in majority firms uh, that are incredibly accomplished in and of themselves, but they don't have the access to leadership. They're not always heard. And it's some of the things we've heard in architecture and in planning. You can have all the accolades, all the degrees, have all the talent, but you may or may not be heard as well, even in 2020. And that's something that's uh, a societal issue. We're not perfect. One of the things that we're even addressing, even though we are the quote unquote, the largest black owned firm, we're not an all black firm. So we have 240 staff, but maybe 30% are black. So we got a lot of white folks. <laughs> and some of the challenges that we're seeing across the country even exist in our own firm, even with a chairman and a CEO who are black. And so that's one of the things that we've been talking through. We've been having some really insightful conversations over the last several weeks about equity, both in the discipline as well as in society. But one of the things that I appreciate and the primary reason why I did come was because we make a concerted effort to work in our communities. We're going to work in quote unquote the Baltimore's and in the Alabama's and in the West Oakland's and a lot of places that a lot of firms may not choose to do they definitely didn't choose to do before uh, June. A lot of the big firms now, everybody want to work in the hood, but they weren't doing so this time last summer. Let's be very clear. So we can and have done and will continue to do the big projects, airports and hospitality and schools and things like that. But we also are very intentional to work on the community plan for that might be a $40,000 job or work for a small town or work for a community center, work for the Y. We're doing a number of those as well. And it's principally because of leadership that exists. And uh, I was brought on because of my planning background because we had done some before my arrival, but not nearly as much. And one of the things I was talking about, and that's why I really appreciate Brother D'Angelos was saying, we are really starting to grasp the relationship between architecture and planning, between architecture and politics, uh, between planning and environmental science and showing how all this, the intersectionality really critically addresses our communities. And so that's a few of the reasons why I came to work for Moody Nolan. So DeAngelos, you are the CEO and co-founder of Neo Partners Incorporated. Can you please tell the listeners about your business and how and why you guys started? So a little similar to Antoine, I worked at Thor Construction, you know, prior to 2018 or December of 2018, which was the Minnesota version of H.J. Russell. So a large construction firm. 40-year history, strong in the community, African-American-owned. It was the largest enterprise in Minnesota that was diverse, and so roughly $300 million in revenue. So I joined that firm to start focusing on, like, for-profit development. You know, that was kind of the arc I was running towards, and so I led that division, and we were doing development for our own balance sheet. So we got to be creative, go find solutions in the community, and get excited. 
in December of 2018, I saw a need, I mean, because they were focused on serving Target, Super Value, these Best Buy, these kind of bigger names. I saw a niche in the market that was like, no one's talking to a small business in the neighborhood. One, because the transaction volume isn't the same, because the size isn't the same. And no one's able really providing that feedback. So they just get pimped. Like our neighborhood businesses who don't have adequate representation end up just getting pimped for fees by larger firms. And that's across disciplines, like in the built environment. So brokers, designers, whatever, they just kind of take advantage of them. I wanted to be that solution. I saw that as a market opportunity. No one's going to do it. Most of the neighborhoods in the Twin Cities are black and brown. So I was like, all right, well, I can develop a market niche and scale it because I'm hyper-focused. And because I'm willing to use technology and be nimble and agile, I can do it. So I founded Nao Partners in December of 2018 with the focus on being the public sector, private sector leader consultant for the built environment. So whether it's planning, placemaking, or real estate development, we were your go-to consultant for everything that happened in the neighborhood. And we could talk about the evolution of that uh, a little bit later, but that's the genesis of what we started is that nobody was serving us. No one, I mean, me and my business partner who I worked with at Thor, the two of us, we're the largest black planning firm between North Dakota and Milwaukee, private sector, not nonprofit CDC kind of work, but like private sector firm. And so like, there's a lot of territory between the Dakotas, Minnesota and Wisconsin for us to really serve. And Moody Nolan, you know, the planning is still new. So they're not really rolling it out in the Midwest yet because no one's really doing that. So we're, we're up against big engineering firms. And so we focused on a niche of no one can do community engagement. Nobody can replicate or replace the black voice in community. So they have to use us. And so that was our starting niche in the planning world is we're going to do community engagement digitally and in person better than anybody else and help the community tell their story and push back when people are asking for things that just aren't realistic. We want to be that voice. We've evolved since then and into a lot. So my business partner, he has his background in planning to undergrads in fashion. So he takes care of our planning, placemaking, and engagement work. I focus on the real estate, finance, and project management work. And so we kind of tackle the small niche industry twofold. Awesome. And I like how you saw a need and went forward to fulfill that need. Yeah, I think it's a requirement as professionals, aside from Moody Nolan, there aren't that many black firms. And so when you talk about the black voice in this field, you have to use us. I mean, you can't water down and bring somebody else. And I think to the point uh, Mr. Bryan brought up, it's time out for that. Like you can't bring in different cultures that come speak about our experiences in our communities. And if you try to, I think the blinders are off in a lot of our communities that they're not going to allow that no more. They're not going to allow you just to come in and talk about what color brick do you want on this affordable housing. They want to see partnership. They want to see ownership and they want to see outcomes that show up on the bottom line, not just in the newspaper. I'm chuckling because I agree so much with everything you said. And I think it resonates much with the work I did personally and the work we're doing with Moody Nolan, definitely with some of the work I've heard you talk about, Jisla, in some of your previous podcasts, just the value add that we bring to the industry and to the communities, because we 
as black planners understand our communities inherently better than your average planning uh, firm will. And we also make a much more intentional effort to play a role. My wife often laughs because, you know, there's, I can go through most parts of any city and I know people, I just, I stop in the barbershops, in the schools, in the, in the little pool halls and everything. I mean, that's community engagement. You can hear more about that community by going to those places as opposed to having your community outreach meeting. I mean, it's like, I cannot tell you how many times I've been a subconsultant to other entities and I told them, first of all, you need to change your whole verbiage, right? I mean, you know, you're not outreaching to anybody. That doesn't work. It's tired of being reached out to. It's you need to have a dialogue. And often dialogue happens outside the norms of your little once a month meeting. You know, you have a lot more relevance when you go to where people are already going and just talk to people. It ain't got to be really complicated. And then once you're able to engender a level of trust and you're able to develop a rapport, then you can begin to employ some of the processes that you use frequently like you start to use your online platforms and your virtual conversations and those kinds of things but it's incredibly important that you establish a relationship before you start trying to engage and that's something that a lot of our contemporary planners especially on the city's or municipal side just don't get and you know we've been able to carve a niche out of that just because of that i think that's dope for a lot of reasons i know you may have some other questions but like I didn't bite the Marxist socialism planning apple that a lot of people bite when they go through planning because, I mean, that's what they what a lot of planning programs have you studying is like, all right, let's start with Athens. Like, wait a minute, we starting where? Now let's go to Barcelona. Let's talk about urban design. I mean, it's like, now let's talk about this bag that y'all keep not giving us in the community and how everybody else keeps making this bag but us. And so really owning that talent. So, I mean, Thor didn't do everything right. But one of the things that I really appreciated was seeing our community get the bag and do the right thing with it. I mean, there's a misnomer that you can get paid and you change. It's like, nah, I've seen us give money to people without asking for it, without getting credit for it. It's like, no, we got it. We're going to give it to you. We're going to reinvest in our community. We're going to be hyper intentional about hiring and who we hire. We're going to be hyper intentional about forcing contracts downstream to be diverse and include black or minority businesses. And so for us in the planning kind of universe, I think it's important for us to be on all sides of the equation. Otherwise, we're creating ideals that we can't fulfill ourselves or in partnership with other people. And so I'm always going to be about securing the bag because I think that's something that we just tend to neglect in the, in the planning circles. And we, we like to create smart consumers in our neighborhood, but we don't like to create smart producers or, or create plans that then enable that to happen. And so I'm gonna let you come back in with the questions, but that's a whole nother podcast about securing the bag. I love it. Yeah, I do totally agree with you. And just to segue a little bit, as black planners, as black people in general need to be in positions of power, and I know, Antoine, that you are on the Houston Planning Commission. I'm actually the chair of my planning board in my city here. And not often we don't see Black people in these positions to help approve and disapprove certain plans that are coming to our community. So can you speak on the importance of that and some of your experiences being on the commission? I'm glad we got here. Just like I saw that on your bio that you were appointed to that position, and I credit you for that. And I think it's something that it's incredibly important. We all went to planning school. We all studied, quite frankly, how impactful 
uh, planning directors, especially in the 30s and 40s, created cities and also created the ghettos that many of us are familiar with. And so it's an incredibly important to stay in that capacity as long as you possibly can. We've got 25 commissioners, and it's myself and another brother, quite frankly. And what's in Houston, not even everyone has even a planning or a design background. It's not uncommon. We've got, you know, developers and engineers and all of that kind of stuff. And we meet bi-weekly, and I make it a point to... I can't miss a meeting because I don't know that'll be the meeting that something affects a neighborhood or community that looks like mine. And you try to force your way into some of our subcommittees. We've got a subcommittee right now looking at complete streets and how complete streets need to be implemented in Houston. We're looking at another committee that's looking at revisiting some of our housing uh, ordinances. We don't have any zoning, which is a whole different, that's a whole separate conversation we need to have. But we do have a certain level of ordinances that govern our development strategies and development patterns. And if I don't cross every T and dot every I on some of these things, some things that are definitely antithetical to how our communities have come would happen. I think it's incredibly important. I was appointed by a mayor two mayors ago, and a special advisor to that mayor was an older brother, older black gentleman. She was a white woman, a female white woman. And he was our special advisor. He basically told her, you need to have Antoine on the commission. We got two openings and you need some brothers. And this brother's smart. He went to Ivy League and everything. That's literally almost how the conversation went. And uh, I'd met the mayor a few times. We weren't close, but I knew who she was. She knew who I was. And uh, she was like, well, I'm going to have my people call you on Monday. We had this conversation, mind you, and I got to tell it to you. We had this conversation at a local chicken shack. I just was going to get some chicken wings for my wife. She was pregnant with our daughter or our son. I think I can't remember and she wasn't feeling well. She wanted some chicken. And I literally had on like some shorts and some sneakers. That's one of them kind of deals. And they were there on a campaign run. And she was like, well, I'm going to have my people call you on set on Monday. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, whatever. And they called me. And they were like, look, we really need you. Can you be at the first session in the week? Sure I can. Yes. And so I say that story because it helps to have advocates or champions on your behalf that can put you in the places that you need to be. But then also while you're there, you have to maximize an opportunity. There's been too many times we've had some gentrification is a real issue in Houston. Like I'm sure it's a real issue in many of your communities. But we've also had some deals where we had to, we had some conflicting housing uses as well as conflicting parking necessities that I've had to actively negate and push down. And I know for a fact, if I were not there, they would just have been kept it moving. And so... I think it's important that we not only are, get these positions, but that we take them seriously. And it's not just a rubber stamp. So we have to stay as active as possible while we're there. I think that's really important to call out is the get into a position that allows you to have some discretionary power to make decisions. And whether that's in business or in the nonprofit, the CDC world, or even in a planning staff is because a lot of this stuff is gray space in the industry. That, it was preached and teach that is by the book, but it is so gray that it becomes head scratching if you go in with your education, like, all right, I'm, if I do this, A plus B equals C all the time. It's like, no, A plus B minus a few other things gets you across the finish line. And one, having somebody with the experience to coach you through that funnel of either it's a project approval or a zoning ordinance amendment or any of those things. I think it's important, but two, having somebody on the other side who can make the decision when it comes down to it. So 
That's why I've always voted private sector. I mean, nonprofits that have some discretion at the board and et cetera. But if I want to give a scholarship, I don't need to talk to nobody. It's a done deal. Now, should I talk to somebody? Potentially. But for instance, there's a young lady here in town who wanted to go to Morgan. I mean, it wasn't Jackson State, so I had to give her a little grief about it. But she wanted to go to Morgan and pursuing her education and planning because she wanted to be in the social service world but wanted to understand neighborhoods before she got into it. Cool. How much you need? All right. Cool. Here you go. And that empowerment moment that I had was because I saw firsthand what you can do when you have the ability and the mindset to make those changes. And you have the discretion. No need to talk about it. It's good. It makes sense. Let's just go. And sometimes we take bureaucracy outside of work and we make everything more complicated than it needs to be. And sometimes we refuse to make things simple because a lot of us who are black in these positions always have to quantify our work. I mean, we feel like we have to defend what we're doing in some of these roles. And so we can't really just like, you know, it makes sense. It made sense. It was simple. Because I've been on the other side where it was a white person with discretionary power who was like, oh, it makes sense. Let's do it. And then there's a contract that shows up. It's like, oh, you didn't have to go to this committee and ask this person. It's like, nope, I had that discretion. We didn't have to meet with nobody else. And so not only understanding what discretion we have and being, to your point, Antoine, about being on point when the time comes for us to step up, but knowing what power we really have. There's a lot of roles in city government and nonprofits where there's a lot of discretion that we just don't flex our muscles because we're afraid of the lash and the pushback. Granted, you got to use some discretion, use some discernment about when to and who to give that power to. But the, the reality is that we have a lot of influence in this industry, but we're not really firing on it right now. We're still hesitant to like pull the trigger. Like, no, nah, I hired them because it was the right thing. And they're good. They grew up in the neighborhood. Boom, boom, boom. We're done. Thanks, you both, for that. And I totally agree with both of you, both of you guys as it relates to that. And D'Angelo's, with you speaking on it being gray in the field of planning, we can talk about that all day. Honestly. All day. All day. <laughs> it is one of the most annoying things to me, honestly, because I work for a local government and basically we follow the zoning code, but we don't really follow the zoning code, but we do follow the zoning code. So that's just... <sighs> All I can do is sigh about that. Okay, so moving right along. So, D'Angelo's, you're in Minnesota where everything went down with George Floyd. May he rest in peace. How have things been for you there as a planner and other fellow Black planners in the area? How's everything been going in that area? We've been called to the carpet to be spokespersons for all things Black related to the urban world and explain theories of anger and dismiss uh-huh. all these other grassroots organizations. And it's, I mean, so one, I've turned that off. So like after the first 14 days, I turned off being the sounding board for people who were feeling the guilt that came with the aftermath of the murder. But I mean, we experienced significant damage to get to this point. We saw all the other killings that happened around the country with Elijah and Brianna and, and down even in Georgia with our Ahmaud Avery, I'm sorry. And then, you know, of course the bigger names of Mike Brown and, and Trayvon. And so we saw all these things boiling up in town here. 
we've had two ourselves. So we've had Philando Castile, who's somebody that grew up in the neighborhood that I grew up in, taught in the school district that I taught at. And then another African-American brother, Jamar Clark, over on the north side of Minneapolis. And so we had a lot of boiling point moments here in town. But having the clear video, having the real kind of you can't deny the criminality of the actions of the officers in the moment, that set it off. And I think people, just like in the civil rights movement, when them cameras showed up and showed the backlash of the police, that's when the consciousness of, I would say, the general populace of white America switched. And they were like, all right, there is a real problem. All right, we really have to do something different. But those 14 days afterwards, man, we, we had over 700 properties damaged by the kind of instigators, if you will, agitators of the protest. 750 businesses. I mean, they're still protesting today. Like we just had the Monday Mother's March just happened today when they marched from one part of town to the Capitol. I mean, so stuff is still alive and going. And what's boiled up to the top of the conversation, of course, is the defund police movement and all the things that are associated with that. And I'll let smarter people talk about what that means and what it doesn't mean. But one thing I care about is nobody's talking about the economic healing in our communities. I mean, COVID wiped out uh, roughly 40% of a lot of businesses, especially black businesses across the country. I think there's a New York Times article that spoke to that in the last month. But then 25% of all other business is on the jeopardy of falling out or they're hanging on by a limb and they're getting ready to pass out. And so when you have a community, I mean, we sustained roughly a billion dollars worth of damage in communities, 85% of which look like me and and you two, which is black. So when we talk about all the other restorative justices and racial justice and policing and policies and philanthropy, I mean, I'm bringing that drumbeat to the table around economic healing. We have to define what that means for different people in the community. But overall, no one's talking about how all these businesses being wiped out really impacted how the local economic base is going to work. But then also, if you look at the status quo, before this happened, Minnesota was, in the Twin Cities, was one of the worst in the country for racial disparities between whites and people of color, and specifically black people. So we had the worst poverty rate and the worst home ownership rate in the country. The Twin Cities was a powder keg ready to spark up and happen. And I think that one thing I'm going to care about, because that's my lane, is how do we rebuild these communities at a scale that makes sense? These communities were built in the 20s, 30s, and didn't change. We just added more single-family housing to them. So what are we going to do now that we have a largely clean slate in a lot of these places to reimagine what our neighborhoods are supposed to be? And that's where the planning real estate side of me starts to dance with two hats. It's like, yo, we have to reimagine what this neighborhood nodes, neighborhood corridors, what do they really look like in this post-COVID, post-George Floyd world? Because having just a bunch of retail shops ain't going to cut it. And with a pandemic that we don't see an end to anytime soon. So what, what does that world look like and how soon can we start to rebuild? I see Antoine's over there, Anson ready to jump in. Go ahead, man. I've got a few thoughts. I appreciate it. I think that 
like you said, powder keg, and that's what set it off for me because I think the situations you described in the Twin Cities have been replicated in communities of color literally across the country. When you're studying planning, when you're in planning school, and usually early in your planning career, you do a lot of comparisons between municipalities across the country. You guys will be amused. When I did my senior thesis, this was an undergrad back in the late mid-90s, my thesis was about the east side. And I talked about every hood and every city is typically on the east side. And I, you know, I looked at about 15 different cities. And you know, it's either the east side or the south side. Most of them is the east side. And many of the issues are very similar. You got a Martin Luther King Jr. Drive, which is usually in the hood, right? It's never <laughs> on the beautiful side with the nice little trees and everything. And you have these areas that are usually over-policed. They're underfunded. The, the school system is usually marginal at best. And there's usually a concentration of dilapidated housing, and it's usually a food desert. And this was the 90s when I wrote this report. And that, none of that has changed. The only thing that's changed, quite frankly, including in, in Minneapolis, is that you're having the influx now of young white professionals that say, hey, I don't want to drive anymore, and I want to live closer to downtown. Oh, there's some black people here, but hey, they don't mind. And so that's the, the longer short of it of gentrification has happened. But as far as the powder keg, I think the three things that we have to address personally, and, and Angelos, D'Angelo's did a great start on it for me, economic empowerment. So we have more ownership in our communities. We have to critically address the education gap. Here in Houston, between 85 and 88% of the children that attend the public school system are on reduced or free lunch. So that means, you know, most of the kids are from households that, you know, economically challenged. And most of those kids are black and brown. And so all the, the kids with means, be brown or white, uh, usually are sending their kids to private school or sending them outside of the city, right? So you've got a real education gap. And then thirdly, you have a policing gap. We talked about the defunding of the police. And I think you two both know, because I've had this conversation with more people than I can count, is not that people just want to get rid of public safety. Like that ain't what we're talking about. But there definitely needs to be a much more critical analysis of A, discussion about what, what, how police were created in the first place. They were created to, to get, uh, quote unquote, the perception of runaway slaves and that whole piece. So it never was really about public safety. But even greater than that, it's taken funds away from community and economic development, from training programs, from parks. They all go to policing. And in our top 20 cities in this country, the overwhelmingly largest department funded in those cities is police. Like, it's not even close. And what does that say about purportedly the most advanced nation in the, in the world, where all our resources go to policing? It's absurd. And don't get me started about how most of the police in those cities don't actually live in those cities. So you're funding a police force and all those resources that they receive go to the little suburb and live outside their city. So these are very, very critical issues that collectively led to the decimation of our communities. I think we're at a tipping point now where we as planners, because we understand how all those things work, the intersectionality of it, can make some definitive recommendations and ideally, like Daniels was saying, some real power moves to make some changes in that regard. I think it's interesting that you said that. So I don't know how it is in Houston because you guys got so much land area to cover. It might be hard to move out. But in the Twin Cities, you might have that same issue and I think others are starting to pick on to it, of teachers who teach in districts where they do not live, do not have children, they don't send their own children there. Not all, but I think if you were to do that assessment, the Twin Cities would have that problem kind of uniformly. And I think 
if you were to take that same intersectional lens, you would find that in nonprofit world, you would find that in the philanthropy, you would find that in corporations. And so what you have is a group of people benefiting off of someone else's geographic location. And it's a system. So a quote that I heard the other day when they talk about African-Americans and the head start that others have gotten in the industry, someone said, well, it's not a head start where they just took off running. It's a reality that a lot of the systems in place are built off of our labor, our suffrage, our unique ability not to be mobile. And we are, in essence, the shoes in which these people are running with because we're so intricately intertwined with their success because you have entire systems built off of us living in one place, but not being able to work there. And so I think this is where the urbanism divide, if we were to start talking about the topic. I think this is where really an entire world of what does it mean to really have to localize workforce, localize participation, localize you know, engagement, ownership. What does that really mean? Because then you have to have a real hard conversation about what does community mean? And I define community as the people networks versus the neighborhood, which is the physical assets that exist in the geography, which they could be two completely separate things because like freeway systems, our neighborhoods were divided and the community scattered, although they still call this physical neighborhood home, they live in the suburbs, they live on the north or south or west or south, east end of parts of town. So I, I think we have to have a real nuanced conversation about do we need a physical neighborhood to anchor community? And if we do, then we have to be talking about how do we make sure our systems hire, serve, and are localized to that neighborhood to reinforce that community. And then I'll step back to let y'all jump in. One of the things that I, I agree with wholeheartedly, you talked about earlier about empowerment and ownership. And I think that this is a time where we can really leverage that and we can really move some things forward. And it's something that I've been torn about, but I'm, I'm probably going to talk about it online in some capacity about all of the murals that we're seeing. And, and we've had people that are volunteering and they're very excited about them. And I'm of the mindset that all those performative acts aren't really changing the needle. They're not changing the needle in our communities. You got something nice that looks beautiful in aerial, right? <laughs> and it looks wonderful in Google Maps. But we still got kids that can't read, right? And, and so that's the issue that we're dealing with. We still got people that have a $40,000 household that doesn't have a place to live in the city of Houston. We still got 75% of, of white households own their home and only 45 or 44 of black households own their home. We still have the average African-American household is one-tenth the worth of the average white household, right? So those are the things I'm thinking about. And so renaming something BLM Avenue don't really, don't really do the same effect for me because it's not changing any of that. So I'm focused on that. I think economic empowerment is going to be key. And I think true political representation is going to be key. And, and I'm being very careful about what I say, because let's be very clear. Just because Reverend Watson has been your state representative for 20 years doesn't necessarily mean he's actually making a difference. Let's be very clear. And so I think there's some real accountability issues that we have to hold our representatives to. Not every Democrat is the most valuable person. Let's be very clear. You know, just because they bought fish dinners for everybody does not mean that they're doing something for the community. And so we really need to hold feet to the fire to affect real change. And that's at every level. I'm a firm believer that we should vote. And I've had this conversation with, with a number of my younger friends and they all oh, terrible, I ain't doing nothing. I'm like, okay, well, you gotta do something. We got to get people in. 
But I'm a firm believer too that it's at every level. So when you're going to engage, you're putting in people in your state board, you're putting in you know, judges in our community, you're putting in our school board. All of that has an incredible effect on what is manifested in how our cities operate. And I think when you have that three-legged stool of the economic empowerment, the physical and, and how people, where they live and how they live, and then the political move, who makes policy and who enforces policy, then we can begin to see some real change in how our cities are playing and how they move forward. I totally agree with you guys on that. And one thing you mentioning, Antoine, is the fact that we have to stop focusing on the unimportant thing. We're focusing on a lot of these things that are just not even really important right now. And we just need to be focusing on how can we affect change? Not to say that there's anything wrong with, you know, doing murals, Black Lives Matter. There's nothing wrong with that. But why are we focusing so much of our attention on that? That's not what's affecting any change in our community. So we need to really be focusing on that. And just to piggyback off what I was saying earlier about getting into these positions of power to actually affect that change, because we can't do that if we are just sitting at home. Of course, we're in COVID-19. We really can't do much outside of our four walls of our house, but there's something that we can do. And like you mentioned, voting is extremely important. Okay, so sort of delving into what we're supposed to be talking about, urbanism divide, which we have been talking about all along. But yeah, so it's sort of like a, a term that I coined talking about the division between sort of whites and blacks as it relates to different aspects, race, gender, sexuality, all those different things, economic differences. So in your guys' personal opinion, how is urbanized America divided based on race? I know this could be a long answer, so. I'll take the first stab. I think a lot of people have become enamored with The Color of Law, the, the book that Rothstein wrote. He actually wrote like two years ago, but now everybody realizes the book that you know, they need to go pick up. And he defines how many of our cities, especially here in America, were defined almost exclusively by race because of de jure segregation, not de facto, right? So de jure meaning it came almost exclusively from governmental intervention. Oftentimes when Blacks got essentially forced into certain parts of where they had to live because there were covenants written into deeds about saying you could not sail to, to Black people. The federal home uh, FHA would not uh, offer mortgage insurance to developers if they sold their homes to Black people. So that effectively kept Blacks out of certain neighborhoods. There was zoning laws put in by planning entities across this country that said whites could live here, Blacks could live here. If you had one, more than two Black families move in, then that neighborhood got blockbusted. There were redlining, there's blockbusting, there's legislation that in and of itself led to us living in certain areas. And then we didn't have the resources nor the mortgage opportunities to even own homes, which led to the wealth gap that we're seeing even today in 2020. I was talking to a friend of mine, and some people saw it on Facebook, where this realtor told this black woman, hey, you should be able to just get a $50,000 loan from your parents for a down payment. And we were like, where they do that at? I mean, I can't talk about your family, but that wasn't how we rolled, right? You know, to many white, white households, that's like, that ain't nothing. They're like, and they ain't got to be rich. They straight up middle class. But because, you know, they had a different foundation, they're coming in a different capacity. And I think... 
It's that foundation when we have that understanding of how cities came to be and how populations were divided almost systematically, then that's what leads to many of the divisions that you see today that are still being perpetrated. And it's not like these things were just overwritten in the 60s. These things are still going on as recently as 10 years ago in many parts of this country. And none of the things have been addressed definitively to be able to right some of those wrongs. And just because you got three black families in the, hood, in, the, in the white neighborhood now does not make it all the way fixed. Oftentimes studies have shown that that black family usually has an income 75% higher than all the other white families that they're in there just to be able to have the ability to live there. Uh, and, and that's absurd and kind of ridiculous. But we can talk about housing, we can talk about the way cities came to be, we can talk about the educational system, which has some of our hugest gaps all across this country. Any one of those, to me, lead to the urbanism uh, divide that we have in America today. And I, I love how you ended on housing, because I would say there's a lot of affordable housing community is very strong. It's a big industry. We aren't always the beneficiaries of that industry, especially in the professional services world and construction world. However, I will say, they haven't started to hit on, and I think that's just our job to be our own thought leaders in our profession, is how housing impacts the ability for neighborhood small businesses to thrive. And I would say, especially in this region, given our climate and just kind of how we built a very tight grid urban system here in the Twin Cities, is that we are hyper-local shoppers, hyper-local consumers. You drive 20 minutes in the Twin Cities, you don't win somewhere. You drive 20 minutes in Houston, you might just went around the corner. Like, you ain't go nowhere. Go nowhere, Doc. And so 20 minutes for us is a big deal to visit friends and family. So when you talk about, I'm going to support a business, or I'm just going to just patron. Like, I'm not even doing a duty. I'm just going to buy toilet paper from Mr. Sam's, the brother who's been having this hardware store around the corner. If that is not close to where you live, you're not going. And so there's a real strong tie between proximity to household and shopping patterns for people who look like us. We're not a drive 30 minutes just to go shopping, especially in places like the Twin Cities where 30 minutes, man, you're completely out in a different part of town. And so looking at how do we build these neighborhoods from a neighborhood standpoint, not from a community, but how do we build neighborhoods that are holistic, that are scalable, that can meet immediate uh, kind of everyday needs of essential goods, that really talks about small business. That really talks about creating wealth. That really talks about the income inequalities, the education inequalities, because you don't need to be, we know a lot of uneducated entrepreneurs who figured out how to get paid because they saw a need and they saw an opportunity and they just stepped into the moment. And so I think we have to balance a lot of these topics. And I would say housing is for different reasons, affordability, it's a big conversation. Gentrification is a big conversation. You talk about kind of the class separation that happens with gentrification. You talk about the nimbyism of low-income communities, not wanting their kids who got degrees, who got paid to come back and live in something nice. I mean, you could talk about a whole lot of nuance in these kind of conversations. But I would say to the housing point that all the things that happened historically from Homestead Act all the way up to FHA, we still have twice the denial rate for blacks. And I think it's like one and a half percent for Hispanics than you do for whites when you control for all the other variables. I mean, I just looked at the study that just came out. Even if you have the new measure of denial rates, it's still twice as likely to be denied 
as other groups. And then two, I don't know if you saw the study that came out of Boston like a month or some change ago around the renter discrimination in the housing where you literally are being denied access to spend your resources in certain communities because of, I would say, the system operating as it should. And so there needs to be a divide conversation around one, the systems that are operating that are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. They give you bad credit. They take as much money per month, all those things. And then you got systems who are operating of, you, you can't live here. We want to prove your loan. We are forbidding you from getting home ownership. And so we look at this kind of from a system operating like it should, what as thought leaders in our urban communities, I mean, I'm saying urban because the rural community has a much different conversation. It's a whole different deal. In Dallas, I use an example because I'm familiar with it. They got a whole lot of diverse black suburbs, which is a other, which is another conversation about what do you really mean when you say urban? Because urban, even within ethnic groups, is starting to mean something very specific, and it's no longer the kind of classless society where everyone lives next to everybody. The firefighter, the businessman. No, it's becoming very class-based, and unfortunately, in this country, class is really defined through race and immigration. And so we are the group that's really getting hit with the brunt of that. If we're not talking about exceptionalism, to your point of the three folks who live in this nice neighborhood, but the masses. So yeah, we're going to continue this conversation next week in the part two. Um, We're gonna be talking about housing, education, gentrification, food deserts, access, just overall access to better quality of life for black people. So thank you guys for joining me and let's tune in next week. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. If you would like to be interviewed in a future episode, please head over to my website at ggtheplanner.com and select the interview tab and you can request to be interviewed by me in a future episode. That's all for today, folks. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Urban Planners Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over and leave a five-star rating on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast so that you won't miss out on an episode. If you would like to buy personalized urban planning gear and other products or are in need of some urban planning career coaching, please head over to ggtheplanner.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at ggtheplanner. Have a great week and we'll see you next episode.